Welcome back to the Palby Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Palby Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon, where it got really cold last night. Had to start the car up uh, early before I left, uh, just so everything could warm up and could defrost the windows and all that. Uh, so uh, hopefully you're staying safe out there. Uh, roads are getting a little icy, a little slick. But uh, anyways, hey, um, this week, as we are going to start our services on Sunday, uh, the 19th. This is our last week for a while in Hebrews, and then we're going to jump into an Advent series. We always do that leading up to uh, Christmas Eve, which is also going to be on a Sunday morning. So that'll be an interesting uh, time. Uh, uh, we'll still do a podcast for that day, so you can always be tuning in. But uh, today, uh, I can't show you this on the podcast, but uh, we're going to be. I'm going to be showing a film clip. Well, not a film clip. It's a clip from an old TV show. In fact. This show, this particular episode, this particular scene of this particular episode of this particular show actually uh, is in the Guinness Book of World Records as having the longest live studio audience laugh in the history of TV. It's from I Love Lucy. And and it's the uh, scene where uh, Lucy and Ethel have gotten a job at a chocolate factory. And they're standing there by this conveyor belt. And this really gruff lady says, you know, this is what you got to do. They come in, you got to wrap these candies so that the boxers can put it in uh, at the at the end. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know probably how it goes if you've seen it. The, the conveyor belt goes way too fast for them. And the task at hand that they want to do that they thought was going to be so easy becomes a frazzled task. Uh, they're frenzied. That they're, they're shoving the chocolates in their mouth, down their shirts, because they don't want to miss any of them, because otherwise they'll be fired. This gruff, this gruff lady is going to fire them. And like I said, it was the longest laugh in the history of live television uh, before a live studio audience. It's it was it's an amazing, it's an amazing clip. Uh, you you got to maybe go to YouTube and watch that. You know, watching that uh, makes me tired. Uh, you know, have you ever had a job like that where you felt like the conveyor belt just kept coming and just got faster and faster and faster and you could not keep up with the demands. Ever feel like that um, when it comes to other areas of your life, you know, just things are uh, starting to just go at fast pace. Have you ever felt like that in your religious life where you set out with a faith in Jesus, but, and you know that there's a God and you know what he wants you to do, but all of his rules just kind of come at you. Uh, faster and faster and faster, and you're trying to get them all, and you, you drop one, and you, you're worried because you, you think God is like that gruff lady who says, "I'm going to fire you if you miss one of these," and, and and so you're overwhelmed by all the things that you think that you have to do in order to please God. It's unfortunate when, in our connection with God, we Christians start to feel like Lucy and Ethel there, trying to keep up with those religious demands. Uh, our view of God seeming too much like the the boss lady uh, who's breathing down our necks, threatening us, threatening us if we mess up. Don't you dare mess up. So this morning, I hope to clear the air of what God has actually called you and I as believers into. Not just following the rules, but having a relationship, a kind of relationship that actually benefits us. And it's the kind of relationship that actually pleases him. And it might just surprise you that what God doesn't want from us. I want to, before we get into Hebrews chapter 4, you'll want to take take your Bibles and go there. I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, where the author of this letter to the Hebrews 
they encourage the author encourages his reader to not neglect what he terms as this great salvation okay, that we have in Jesus. He goes, don't neglect this great salvation. Now, I want to pause there for a minute. Have you ever really truly considered, pondered what makes the salvation that we have in Jesus so great? Is it merely the fact that we don't have to spend eternity separated from God? Is that what makes our salvation great? Is it because he uh, it was freely offered to us? Is, is that what makes our salvation great? Because I love deals that are free, you know. Hey, Trey, you want to? Yes, I want to. Whatever it is, I want it if it's going to be free. Yeah. Or, or is there something more, something in addition to all of that that makes our salvation great? Have you ever spent time thinking about what it means when you say that you're saved? If I were to go back to school to get my master's degree, and if I had to write then the thesis that's always required when you're taking your master's degree, I, I really believe that the area of my study would, would be about salvation. It's one of those ideas in Scripture that people think that they understand, but in my experience, very few people really do understand it fully. People talk about being saved all the time. But were you aware, for example, that the New Testament actually speaks of three distinct realities that are all three called being saved? First of all, there's the point of conversion. Okay, And that's what the Bible refers to as justification. When somebody professes faith, in Jesus as the Son of God who died for their sins. This is typically what people mean when they say, when were you saved? They, they want to know, when were you converted? When did you invite Jesus into your heart? Uh, when were you saved? Um, they're, they're talking about a fixed point in time where you made a decision for the Lord. And, and there's several uh, parts of, in, in Scripture that I'm, I'm going to show to our congregation. I don't have them in front of me, uh, where in the New Testament, that's what it means when it says to be saved. But then, secondly, the Bible uses that same word, saved, when it speaks of the process of becoming less like the world, less like our old sinful selves, and more like Jesus. Uh, it, it, it's called sanctification. That's the big church word for there. And it's when the Holy Spirit, who comes to live within us at our conversion, begins to chip away at the old person and recreate us into more and more into the image of Jesus. The reality of being saved is a process. It's not just a one-time thing and you're done. It's a process. So, yes, we were saved, but we're being saved as well. That's The Bible actually uses that word to talk about the sanctification, sanctification process, the continual movement of God's Holy Spirit that results in the ever-increasing Christ-likeness in me. I'm being saved. And finally, the New Testament will speak of salvation or being saved as the moment you step from this life into the next, or glorification. Um, and, and, and it's the same word for all three. The point of conversion the process of being saved, becoming more like Jesus, and then finally stepping from this life and uh, being with Jesus forever in heaven. So there's kind of a there's kind of a rhetorical question when somebody says, "Well, when you when were you saved?" Well, I, I'll ask this. Well, which saved are you talking about, <laughs> right? Um, and which one of these would be considered the great salvation that the author of Hebrews is talking about? Is it any one in particular, or could it be maybe all three? And maybe that's why it's so great. 
because it is in the past, it is in the present, and it is for the future. Just like God was, is, and is to come. Isn't that interesting? Right. How many trinities God has given to us like that. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see other terms that are connected to this idea of being saved. Uh, there's redeemed, uh, there's adopted, there's reconciled. All of these are part of a great salvation. And there are blessings that come with salvation, not just heaven. Uh, by, by the way, so you, you get peace with God. Uh, you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You do have the hope for eternal life. You get forgiveness of sins. You become more like Jesus. Salvation is amazing. How great of a salvation. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect this. It's the best deal that you've ever found in your life. And then there's one more blessing that he brings up here in chapter 4. And that's the blessing of rest. One scripture to bear in mind before we read Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, when Jesus said to the, the Jews who were caught up in this chocolate factory uh, conveyor belt, trying to get everything done and to, and to be right, to make sure everything, every little I is dotted, every T is crossed, all of that. Jesus said to them, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. See, that's what he was meaning. He was meaning their religious duties. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's that's the benefit that the author is going to be bringing up here in 4 through 11. So I'm going to read the text, and we're going to see what we can glean from it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who had listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my rest, they shall never enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, this is one of those complex passages that reflect a rabbinical mindset. So what I hope to do today is, rather than go through every line word by word, I, I want to paint a broad stroke okay, to, to see what the point is for us to understand. Well, we begin again with the word therefore, and again, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? So you have to go back from last week to see what the point was that this point then hinges upon. Last week, we learned that we cannot harden our hearts, just like the Jews had uh, hardened their hearts in the day of Moses. And you have this entire generation who had been brought out of slavery, but that wasn't the full plan. They were forbidden to, uh, by God to enter into the promised land because they were disobedient. They grumbled. They wanted to go back to Egypt. 
The promised land was the gift from God. Okay, It was not something that they had earned. It was a gift. It was a free gift from God. But they still had the responsibility to go into the land, right? And to take it through faith in the power of God. But instead, they rebelled. And then they said, we don't want to go into the promised land. And so God said, fine, I'll give you that choice. You don't want to go in? You won't. Uh, you won't go into the promised land. Instead, you are going to, in his wrath, he promised, you will die in this wilderness. And everybody 20 years and up would die and not be able to go into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. They died. They would rather die than to go into what God had promised for them. And so he says, I promised you in my wrath, you shall not. Which brings up the question, what is the rest that God has promised us or to given us? Obviously, whatever it is, the author of Hebrews wants his audience to pay attention. Therefore, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's like, ah, you got to grab onto this thing. Don't miss out on the rest. Again, as we noted last week, he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to people who have already confessed their faith in Jesus. They have chosen to follow Jesus. Verse 2 is clear. It says, good news came to us. Good news has come to us, just like it came to Moses' generation. Okay? These are folks he's writing to that have heard and have accepted the gospel message. These people are believers. This is not written to unbelievers, which makes us very... you got to understand the implications there. See, they're, <clears throat> the, the believers, the Hebrew converts that are thinking of leaving their faith in Jesus to go back to the law, to be justified uh, through the law uh, and, and be made right with God. They are being compared with that first generation back in Moses' day. And like I said last week, just because you were one of the elect of Moses' day didn't automatically mean that you were guaranteed a spot in the predestined promised land. <laughs> it is possible for those who make an initial response to God's call to walk away. Okay? Not, not that the devil can take you away. No, no. But you can make a choice to say, no, I don't want this. And isn't this the message of Jesus' parables about the soil that the seed of the word of God fell upon? There are some folks who receive the good news with joy, but either they had too shallow of roots or they hadn't separated themselves from the thorns of this world. And as a result, they did not grow. They died and withered away. That was the first Exodus generation. Believers who didn't really believe. Interesting, huh? Believers who wanted something but never were really believing that that could happen. So the author is giving this dire warning. Be afraid. Be very afraid. It could happen again. Be careful lest you become bored and indifferent and eventually become hardened in your heart and fail to embrace God's promised rest by faith in Jesus. Some of you have been in church virtually all your life. You have simply assumed by being in church, you're okay. You're spiritually safe because you're at church most of the weeks of the year. You, you, you say, I have nothing to fear. I'm, a, I, I'm an American, right? I, I have this heritage of Christianity in, 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 my, in my background. You attend the service uh, on a Sunday every so often. You've never committed a scandalous sin. Or, or like most people say, well, I haven't killed anybody. That's a pretty low bar there. 
<laughs> but like a wise man once said long ago in a sermon that I heard, thinking that being in church makes you a Christian is about as silly as thinking about being in a McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. The gospel message is not just, just about giving us a free ticket to heaven. There are, as we mentioned a moment ago, many blessings that come with the good news of the gospel. And yet, according to the last part of verse 2, the Exodus generation did not get any benefit. Oh, sure, they were out of Egypt, but they didn't get to go into the promised land. There was no benefit from salvation. They, they weren't slaves anymore, but they, they were wanderers in the wilderness for 40 years until every single one of them died. They never entered into the promised land. Realization of that promise hinged upon a faith that compelled them to follow. Faith that compelled them to follow. And by the way, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. God continues to call people to take hold of his promises through their faith, by his grace, but through their faith. And that faith is demonstrated by following, okay? putting action to what we say we believe. Now, in order for us to make sense of what the rest is that, that the author is, is uh, talking about here, remembering that we need to keep a rabbinical mindset, we should take note that there are not just one, but four or five realities of rest that we read of in Scripture. The first time that rest was mentioned was back in the Genesis account of creation, Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Here God is resting. Not because he needed it. Oh, I'm so tired. No, he's resting, though, after the work of creation. And, and this, by the way, is alluded to in verses 3 and 4, in, in chapter 4 of Hebrews. He, the author says his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day, that God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. So God's first Sabbath rest is the first reality of what Sabbath rest is. The second instance of rest then was the commandment then that God gave through Moses in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On that day you shall do no work, right? You shall rest. So again, I want you to understand this. Jesus even acknowledged this. The Sabbath was a gift from God. It was a gift from God to his people. On our own, we would probably work ourselves to death. Jesus told us that God made the Sabbath to serve man. It is a gift for us to be able to take a regular break from our busy lives to rest. Now the third reality of the Sabbath then comes after Moses passes away, and now the people of God are being led into the promised land uh, by Joshua. This is the next generation. And the Sabbath rest we read of in Joshua is more about geography than anything else, uh, because God calls the land that they are going into, the Sabbath rest. Check out Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You see there, the rest of the Lord that the, that the people were given, it was the land. It was, they had taken possession of the land. 
and now they were given rest. This is what the Exodus generation missed out on by refusing to, to take the land. And, and by the way, they, they struggled throughout that whole wilderness period. They never had rest like this next generation did. Now, some people, some people would think then that, well, there it is. That was the Sabbath that God was talking about. That's the final Sabbath rest that God had in store. Well, not so, little Joe. Remember from last week that King David recognized that God had something even greater in mind in addition to the land because he writes that psalm, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did back in Meribah and Massa, right? Uh, in the wilderness when your fathers put God to the test and put him to the proof, though they had seen his work. That attitude led God to say, they will not enter my rest. But now there is a rest still to come. David is thinking of a rest that could happen after Moses, a rest that could come after Joshua. The author of Hebrews is picking that up here in verse 7, where he says, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, in the words already quoted, uh, for, is Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. To the author, it is the appearance in these last days of Jesus, the God-man, speaking now a complete revelation from God. That, that's the rest offered by God to us today. And it's not about a certain day of the week. It's not about a particular plot of land. This is much more about a spiritual reality that God obviously had been preparing his people for by giving them the day, by giving them the land. Now all of this culminates into the spiritual reality of rest. Listen to what the author says in verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. Oh, see, no more do you have to look at that conveyor belt of chocolate and say, I've got to get all of this done. Otherwise, I'm not saved. Whoa, 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 slow down. You can rest from your works, just like God did from his work. See, the rest that God is offering was modeled by those Old Testament examples. But instead of ceasing from physical labor, the author is encouraging his audience to cease from the pressure of having to, to do salvation all on our own power, our own merit, our own labor, our own efforts. God promised in the Old Testament to one day write his law, not on stone tablets, but on our hearts, so that we would change. So this particular Sabbath rest that we read of here in Hebrews is, is not the one day of the week that we set aside to physically rest, although that still stands, and we should still do that. But... And it's not the land, though I believe that Israel should stay in their land. God gave it to them. It was his to give to them. It's now theirs. But this new type of Sabbath, this third type of Sabbath, is this continual reliance, not on our own ability, but on the work of Jesus on the cross for our salvation. For our salvation, for our justification, for our sanctification, and for our glorification. Such a great salvation. This is what Jesus then means in his teaching back in Matthew 11. Speaking to a people who were under the law, many of whom were crazy busy trying to be good enough for God, just like Lucy was in that clip. And, and realizing how soul-crushing that can be and how weary that makes us. Jesus gives them insight into God's heart. What God's heart has always been in regard to obedience. God's always wanted us to obey. But he didn't want it to be so, i got to do this or else I, I'm going to be out. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy 
I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, to understand this fully, you got to ask, what's a yoke? Well, a yoke is a wooden cross piece that's fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to then a plow or a cart that they are to pull. Jesus is, co- is comparing the yoke that the teachers of the religious law in his day, that, that yoke that they were putting on the people, it was a heavy, oppressive list of do's and don'ts. And, you know, they, they, they took 10 commandments and they made 365 of them to explain those 10. That they were made up by religious leaders as a way to make sure nobody stepped out of line. He's comparing that, their yoke, with his yoke, which was relatively easy. Because it spoke of a true righteousness that came from a true heart. Uh, A desire to do the right thing. Not, oh, I have to. But I get to. I want to. Jesus condemned the Jewish leaders for putting unrealistic expectations on the people in order for them to be made right with God. What he was offering was different. Now, please note, what he was offering is still a yoke. Okay? Still a yoke. But this yoke was different. It, it wasn't heavy. It, it, it wasn't unnecessary. But it still connected the believers to him. This was my aha this week, by the way. This was my excited, like, wow, thank you, God, for this insight. See, by coming to faith and by choosing to obey and follow Jesus, I must understand what I did there on that day that I made that choice. Because it's not just a prayer. And then I coast my way into heaven. It's connecting myself to Jesus, putting on his yoke. Well, I'm one of those two in the yoke. Who's the other one? Jesus. So now, if I were to be yoked to Jesus, then wherever he goes, wherever he moves, guess what happens to me? I go with him. I yoked myself to him. He goes this way. I go this way. He goes that way. I go that way. Where he goes, because I am yoked to him, that's where I am going. That blew my mind. And it makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. That's how a yoke can be easy. Because I don't have to struggle and say, I got to go this way. All I got to do is put that yoke on me and where Jesus goes, I go. Right? It can be a rest because I don't have to make those decisions anymore. He does. It's no longer on me to carry the bulk of the load. And I'm still headed where I'm supposed to go, but it's not on me. It's on the Spirit of God leading me where I'm supposed to go. And then, wherever that is, my life, I I can be assured that my life will reflect God's righteousness. Not not because I'm doing it, but because I have connected myself to the one who has done it. He's the strong one. I just learn to follow as I go. So the conclusion that the author then says here in verse 11 is, let us therefore, there it is again, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Oh, so much better than having to do it all on your own. So that no one may fall by the fail by the same sort, uh, fall by the same sort of disobedience. Again, not striving to earn our way in, but striving to be stay connected to the one who is righteous. Now, one last thing to bring up this morning by way of encouragement. There's one last reality of the Sabbath rest mentioned in Scripture, and that's the eternal rest. 
in heaven that waits for the believers. It's the final and forever expression of God's rest that Jesus gives us a glimpse of through his revelation to John, chapter 21, where we read of the absence of death and mourning and crying and pain. It's that time when God wipes away all tears from his people's eyes. It is that inexpressibly joyful experience when, as we read of in verse 3 of Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You know, we're rounding into the Christmas season, and once again, our Christmas decor team has done an amazing job in making our place look festive. Beginning next week, we'll start to sing Christmas songs and focus on Advent readings. So it's, it's here. But even as we prepare, as we sign off from Hebrews just for uh, five weeks, it's very cool that this week we see the meaning behind one Christmas song in particular, God rest ye merry, gentlemen. It's, it's not God rest you, comma, merry gentlemen. You're not talking about merry gentlemen. He goes, no, men, people on earth, God wants to rest you merry, which means he wants you to understand this joyful experience of relying on him. God rest you merry. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ, the Savior, is born is born. See, the cause of our joy at the commemoration of Jesus coming into our world is that's at the heart of God's rest that he, that God offers today. And so today, don't harden your heart. If you don't harden your heart, that joy could be yours. But it depends on if you accept that gift and allow his yoke to be placed on you so that you're not overwhelmed by all those rules you have to follow, but rather you're guided in the way that you want to go. Trusting in Jesus' sacrifice to make you right with God, to bring you forgiveness, but in keeping in step with the work of the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus. If you were wondering what you should ask for, for Christmas this year, let me encourage you. The Sabbath rest would be a great present this year. In fact, the very best present you've ever received. God wants you to, to rest you, Mary, to, to bring eternal joy as you trust in Him, for then nothing shall dismay or prevent you from entering into his rest. Well, that's the encouragement from uh, Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 11. Uh, again, starting next week, we're going to be talking about uh, the different titles of, of Jesus. Uh, it's uh, the Lion of Judah, and the King of Kings, and the uh, Lamb of God, and the, um, oh, what's the last one? And the Lord of, of Life, I believe. Anyways, those are, I, I walked into our sanctuary, and I saw four banners. I went, well, that's, that's going to be our Advent series. I love those banners. They're beautiful. And I want to thank Mary Lance, uh, a gal that uh, comes in every every uh, Thanksgiving time, and, and she begins to prepare us uh, for our celebration of Jesus coming into the world, whenever that was. Probably not December 25th. <laughs> but he did come into this world, and so we're going to celebrate it. And, and that's, that's a good thing, because if he hadn't come into this world, then we were lost still. So praise God for Jesus's birth, whatever it was. Um, anyways, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining in. Thank you, Ron Becker, for being a part of what's going on here today and, and praying for you. He's praying for you too, by the way, not just praying for the congregation here. Uh, thank you uh, to uh, Lisa Welly for executive producing this podcast. And thank you for Steve uh, Pittman for uh, just being our tech guru. Uh, we will talk with you next week. Have a blessed one and may your Thanksgiving be a wonderful time.